All right, all right, all right. Welcome to the Cavern Ships Podcast. Once again, we're going to try and cut through some of the fog, the murk, and shine a bit of light on naval maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, the U.S. Navy's littoral combat ships have begun leaving service, far short of their planned service lives, and more are likely to follow. It's a remarkable situation where some ships are being decommissioned even as others are under construction. We'll talk about some of the issues surrounding what are questionably the most controversial ships ever built by the U.S. Navy. And while the height of the pandemic seems to have passed, the implications of increasingly stringent requirements for employees to get the COVID vaccine could further affect defense production. We'll discuss. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. The U.S. carrier Ronald Reagan moved into the South China Sea September 24th after completing its Central Command mission to support the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. The South China Sea presence didn't last long, however, and the carrier moved through San Bernardino Strait in the central Philippines on September 27th to enter the Philippine Sea, where the carrier Carl Vincent also has been operating, along with Britain's HMS Queen Elizabeth. This marks three large carriers underway at the same time in the Western Pacific. U.S. Marine Corps F-35B Joint Strike Fighters will operate beginning October 3rd from the newly upgraded Japanese destroyer carrier Izumo. The Japanese Defense Ministry said September 30th, the Izumo and her sister ship Kaga, Japan's largest warships, are being modified to operate the JSF, and the upcoming operations are to validate modifications done to Izumo earlier this year. It will be the first time that Japan's so-called helicopter-carrying destroyers have operated the fixed-wing fighters. Japan is buying 157 Joint Strike fighters, of which 42 will be short takeoff or vertical landing version, also operated by the U.S. Marines. Two U.S. Marine JSF squadrons are based in Japan. Greece and France announced September 27th an agreement to buy three FDI HN frigates from France's naval group. The French group beat out competitors from Fincantieri, Dahman, Lockheed Martin, and Babcock for the year's most hotly contested frigate program, worth around 3 billion euros, about $3.5 billion. The deal is for three frigates with an option for another, all to be built in France. The FDI is a smaller version of France's Frem frigates, packing similar firepower into a smaller hull. It was developed specifically with the export market in mind. The wind comes on the heels of mid-September's shocker when Australia canceled its major submarine deal with Naval Group in favor of buying nuclear-powered submarines. The Chinese Navy's 39th Escort Task Force left Qingdao September 26th for an anti-piracy deployment to the Gulf of Aden and waters off Somalia. The task force is usually comprised three ships. The 39th made up is made up of the destroyer Urumqi, frigate Yantai, and supply ship Taihu, with special forces troops embarked. The first escort force deployed in late 2008, and the mission to the Western Indian Ocean is China's longest-running series of naval deployments, giving the People's Liberation Army Navy extensive experience in long-term blue-water operations. The annual UNITAS exercises are taking place off South America's West Coast, hosted this year by Peru. 
This is the 62nd straight year for the exercises, which began in 1960, and integrate Latin American navies and Coast Guards with United States and other navies. Among the 22 ships taking part this year are the U.S. submarine Columbia, destroyer Mustin, and amphibious ship John P. Murtha. USS Freedom, the first littoral combat ship, was decommissioned September 29th at San Diego and towed out the next day, bound for the reserve fleet in Bremerton, Washington. The ship was commissioned in November 2008 amid great fanfare and promise for the then innovative littoral combat ship program. But the Freedom was never fully operational and suffered a series of developmental problems. Freedom is not the first littoral combat ship to leave service as the Independence was decommissioned in late July. Congress and the Navy are still debating how many LCSs will leave service, even as construction continues on both types. We'll discuss this in greater detail in a few moments. Huntington English Shipbuilding is requiring all of its 44,000 employees to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 by December 8th. The move has been anticipated by some observers, especially after the Pentagon in August announced all service members would need to be fully vaccinated. HII is the largest shipbuilder in the U.S. with major shipyards in New Brunswick, Virginia, and Pascagoula, Mississippi. It is also the first major U.S. defense contractor to require all its employees to be vaxxed, although more will certainly follow. And that's a quick look at Naval News this week. So Chris, let's move into the discussion portion of the podcast um, and let's dive into these two issues, um, the HII decision, as well as um, the littoral combat ship program writ large. Let's first start with HII. What's the significance of this decision? Um, Not so much in the context of COVID or, you know, vax, anti-vax, but from a shipbuilding standpoint and from a industry standpoint. Well, you know, I think I think a lot of people have, have seen this coming, especially after the the uh, the vaccine was certified by the by the government, and then the Pentagon is mandating all military members to be vaccinated. Uh, at some point, one might, one could assume that the major defense contractors will follow suit. There's an although the Pentagon isn't telling the companies to do this. Um, it's probably it's, they they know it's going to be good practice. The uh, the Navy, for example, in this case, has has a, quite a number of people on the scene, on site in these shipyards, uh, and they're they're uh, always concerned about the safety of their members. Um, so any company doing business, regular business with the, with the government and with the military has got to be thinking about this. The real issue here is that um, these shipyards are not in places that are that are, have high vaccination rates. Uh, Newport News Shipbuilding, which is the only yard where we build nuclear submarines and they build half of the nuclear submarine, I'm sorry, only yard building nuclear aircraft carriers and, the, and they build half of, a, of all nuclear submarines um, is in Virginia and the surrounding area has about a, uh, the, the vaccination rate is around 59%. Um, that's not bad. Actually, that's that, that that's that's more than a lot of places. The that's I'm sorry, that's at 59 percent for the for the shipyard itself right now. Uh, Ingalls on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi is in a different area where the vaccination rate is only in the and now in the high 40s, and uh, that's the, the the state itself is one of the lowest as one of the lowest rates in the country. They're actually fifth lowest right now in Mississippi. 
but there's a lot of opposition. Both companies have trying to been trying to uh, make vaccination as easy as possible for their employees. Like many companies, they've set up on-site uh, vaccination areas. They've provided time and transportation um, to get the shots, uh, but they've had issues getting people to to actually do do it. So they have. Well, they've given this date, December eighth. They've not said what the consequences are yet. We're requiring everybody to be vaccinated, fully vaccinated by December 8th. What happens then? Well, they're still trying to soft pedal this. Uh, they're trying not to be pushy about it. They're trying not to appear to be forcing people, although eventually they're going to have to. So it is dicey. It is confront. It is um, um, seriously debatable everywhere. And there are probably going to be some attrition here. This, it, now how much remains to be seen. You might you might assume that of the uh, of the employees, maybe somewhere five to ten percent may just quit rather than get the shot. Nobody knows. Remains to be seen. There's twenty five thousand employees at Newport News, eleven thousand five hundred at Ingalls. Um, if you have five or ten percent of those people leave. That's probably going to start affecting production. And well, not probably, unquestionably affect production. One more factor in the in the pandemic. So uh, obviously, although um, production production has, uh, while suffering a major hit last year, is more or less back on track, but still hobbled by increasingly problematic supply issues. Every everyone's having experience with this, as the entire international supply system is is struggling. Um, this will be one more factor as people try to recover and get back up on the step about where they're trying to go with this. Personally, I, I give HII a lot of credit, um, both in, in the courage to make this decision when they did and the thoughtfulness in which they are presumably working their way through. So um, I, I think from time to time, we'll want to check in with HII and we'll want to track others and see where this ends up as we approach that uh, December 8th deadline. Um, because as we've talked about many times, uh, it's not like there's a pool of workers that they can tap into if they lose that 10 to 15%. Um, this is already a strained workforce. This is something that, that both Navy leaders and folks on the Hill are going to have to keep a close eye on. They are, and we'll wait. We'll have to see what the uh, General Dynamics does, the, the, the second largest shipbuilder. Of course, uh, they're, they're the lead yard for, the, for all submarine uh, construction. Uh, they have Bath Iron Works, what's going to happen up in Maine. Um, they have another major yard, uh, National Steel Shipbuilding in uh, San Diego, plus the uh, repair yards, BAE Systems. Um, they're probably going to have to, they, they might be expected to follow suit, as well as Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, all the biggies. At some point, Boeing um, will start coming into this. So it will, it'll be a lead issue. But yeah, HII is going to be the bellwether for it. Uh, absolutely. All right, so let's switch gears. Um, let, let's move to our second uh, discussion topic. Other than the, the Nationals and the Capitals, the Washington hockey team, <laughs> I can't think of an issue that you and I have discussed more frequent in our two-decade friendship than the Toro combat ship. Can you? Yeah, I'd probably probably when you when you <laughs> add it all up, that's probably I, I'd say LCS is wins actually over. Right. 
So what what was going through your mind as you're watching Freedom uh, get get decommissioned uh, or seeing images of, of Freedom getting uh, decommissioned and then towed out of uh, San Diego? Um, I mean, are, are, are you stunned? Are you disappointed? So, uh, let's just kind of riff uh, for a few minutes as we as we hit on some of the the issues of this program that I think are embodied in in the decommissioning of Freedom uh, this week and you know Independence earlier in the year. This is a you know uh, number one. I my uh, take on LCS is is not in line with a lot of the louder people who want to shout about how it's stupid and dumb and never should have done it and throw them all away and do something else. And it's not this, it's not that. Um, I'm not aligned with that crowd. Um, I have to admit, I've, it, it, um, I mean, I covered this program from the very beginning, from, um, from its uh, germination as ideas and the, at the Naval War College as Street Fighter to the uh, earliest um program aspects to the contract award to all the construction um, problems to visiting the ship under construction in marinette wisconsin to being at the commissioning in milwaukee to being the first with one other person the first media on board the ship underway um and i've been i've embarked that I've embarked the freedom actually twice um and yeah, it's it, you know it's different. It, you know when you when when you see a ship that you followed through all of its construction and you were there at the commissioning, and now you're watching the decom, and it's being towed out ignominiously, um, in less than 13 years from from the commissioning, um, it is very disappointing. And there's there's never been anything like the littoral combat ship program historically, and I mean anywhere. It's 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 a unique program on any number of levels. Um, it's not, a, it's not a lecture. It's not a course in college. It's not a major. I mean, it's a, it's a life. It's just, it's a, it's a major area of study and, um, and it continues and it's by no means done. What's, what's so bizarre about decommissioning these ships. Um, they've now decommissioned the first class for each of the two classes, freedom and independence. Their ships of the, each of those classes are still under construction. They're still being built. And to, to decommission ships as, as we're building them, I mean, this, this is sort of insane. Uh, if you don't like it and you're still doing it and you, you've been saying how often you don't like it and yet you're saying how often now you're still doing it, that's nuts. Um, and ultimately, whatever the, I mean, you, you can come up with multiple technical issues, operational issues, support issues, logistical, there's, there's no end of issues with LCS. Ultimately, it comes down to me as a failure of management. It's just, this is exact, where executive management has just failed every which way from Sunday. The amazing thing is it still exists at all. It never turned out the way it was supposed to. Um, you were never supposed to have two variants. That's purely, that's pure politics and nothing more. Um, they've never, the Navy's never built two entirely different versions of the same kind of ship. There've been different classes in our construction at the same time, the, say destroyers and submarines, but there were reasons for that. This is, this is politics. They couldn't, it's just plain and simple, but it's, um, 
there was a lot of there are a lot of reasons why it happened. Um, people fail to understand a lot of those or take them into account. Um, the vast majority of people have looked at LCS and trashed it for not being what what they want to look at. It's not it's it's not a frigate. It's not a destroyer. It's not the kind of ship I grew up with. It's like, well, yeah, that's right. It's not. Um, and they can't get past that. And the Navy was terrible, awful um, at selling the concept. Um, there were there were several moments in the course of it where things began to get better and improve and settle down. And then some, some new admiral would come around and say, we're going to review everything and start all over again. I, you know, if you change everything every three years, I can't get anything done. And it was it's a, every time the program began to move forward, including acceptance in the fleet, acceptance as an operational entity, some, somebody would come along and change everything again. It's not what I want it to be. Well, good for you. Those people are also now all out of service. <laughs> um, and, but their lasting legacy was disrupt, disrupting a program. There was never a never a sustained cultural drive to make the program work and at some point you got to look at all these admirals and all these officials program people and just say you know you guys didn't really live up to your responsibility and simply making it work people just kept wanting to change it what do you think i mean you were there you, you were working for um, the commander of U.S. Naval Service Forces out in San Diego when the Freedom was commissioned. Well, what, was, what were some of the thoughts you were thinking? So our, our view at the time um, was that if we could get LCS um, into the fleet, and, and I think this was, you know, I say our view, th their view, um, the, the leadership, the surface leadership at the time, was if you could get it into the fleet, that, that, you know, building on um, what we saw with the Oliver Hazard Perry class and other classes that, you know, once you started operating the ships, you could ring out whatever the problems were and, and, and the, the learning cycle would speed up and, and, and that things would be fine. Um, and that just never happened. And, and it, it, it never happened because DC and the CISCOM they never really DC, let go of those. DC Curtis, things. Admiral DC Curtis. No, no, no. I'm sorry. When I say DC, um, Washington DC. Washington DC. Okay, not, not to be confused with DC Curtis. Washington DC and NAVC. You know the Pentagon and NAVC. They never let go of this program. They never let it. Um, I, I believe in its critical stages. They never let it be a fleet program, and therefore the fleet never really grabbed onto it and never really right. um, ran with it. Right. I mean, um, sadly, uh, it, it's no um, it's no surprise that acquisition programs get to the fleet and there are problems and they need to need to be fixed. But I mean, you, you know, we kind of know how to do that if it becomes a fleet issue. And this never really became a fleet issue. And I, I mean, you could almost argue that it still isn't a 100 percent a, a 100 fleet uh, issue in which the fleet can grab it and, and, and can fix right. it. And now it's going to be a bill payer. I mean, it, it essentially, you know, as you talked about earlier uh, in the summer, um, there are plans as part of the Palm 23 uh, build. There are plans to get rid of the whole class of freedom ships as a way of uh, uh, of paying bills. And it just, 
I have a hard time as somebody that really thinks we need to grow the fleet and we need to grow capabilities. I have a hard time of squaring the circle of throwing ships away and then going back to Congress and the American people and asking to buy more right. ships. It, right. it, it just doesn't sit right with me. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree. I mean, if it, if it doesn't work, okay, we'll fix it. Um, but there been, uh, there is no end of suggestions from the sailors who operate the ships on how to make them work. People get assigned to the ships, they become crew members, they believe in the ship, they want it to work. Um, what can we do to make this better? And these suggestions get passed up the line. And then they get to the program office and some, you know, it's presented at a meeting and some 06 will say, well, these people on the ships just don't know what we're trying to do here. It's like, well, dude, we're trying to make it work. You're trying to do something that is not working and you're resisting suggestions for changes just out of hand. They don't understand what we're trying to do. What you're trying to do isn't working. And this institutional resistance to make the program work has just been fatal all along the way. Um, you know, I, I wrote a piece quite some years ago about aircraft carriers and how this was like the development of aircraft carriers in the sense that um, nobody knew how aircraft carriers were going to work. In the 20s, we had this conversion. We converted a, 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 a collier, a coal ship, into essentially a concept demonstrator, the Langley. You know, can, can you make an aircraft carrier? Okay, that's neat. So let's do, we had these big hulls left over from treaty cancellations in the 20s and these huge battle cruiser hulls. And we converted two battle cruisers, Lexington and Saratoga into aircraft carriers. The largest ships ever commissioned in the US Navy, uh, commissioned within weeks of each other in 1927. And you would have, this was a time when we weren't building the U.S. Navy. The construction budget was totally low. It was very, very low. It had, you know, tons of surplus ships after World War One. So if you look at these ships and look at the investment in them, that's an enormous amount of money. They have huge crews. Um, the percentage of the Navy's construction budget that one of those two ships was, was huge. And you would have thought, wow, these guys really know what they're doing. I'm sure there were all these studies that said, yeah, aircraft carriers is the way to go, and it'll be really neat. And no, this was very much a, a concept in flux and in development. And if they hadn't built those two aircraft carriers and begun playing with issues like how do you operate aircraft from show, how do you, how do you organize the aircraft, who do the aircraft report to, what's the best way to land a craft, who, who does the maintenance? How, I mean, endless tactical operations, are they scouts? Aircraft carriers were CVs because C meant cruiser. Cruisers were scouts. They were thought of as scouts for the battle line. They weren't, they weren't um, strike assets. And that's why they had their, the first two ships had eight, eight inch guns because they were expected to take damage, lose their flight decks and then fight on as cruisers. Um, that changed completely. And that requirement morphed totally into what we know as an aircraft carrier but without those ships to play play with all that experimentation endless experimentation that went on throughout the 30s as this type of ship was developed would never have happened if people had just been doing studies you have to put it in the hands of people and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of folks um, had their hands in developing the aircraft carrier 
without the assets, it wouldn't have happened. Same thing with LCS. It was not a proven con concept. The mission module was a was a idea the to try to get away from the block obsolescence that that hit the frigates, the Oliver Hazard Perry class frigates, and make some make make things more flexible, both in terms of operational flexibility and over time being able to upgrade them. You wouldn't have to rebuild the whole ship. You can just upgrade the module. And you needed the sailors to be able to work out the kinks and all that. Throw them into the fleet. All the, all the old people came up with these ideas. Now throw them into the fleet. Let the young people figure it out and tell you, what, tell you how it's going to work. And that's where they should have been. Except that the old people back in D.C. kept coming up with new ideas about it's not what I really want. I'm going to change everything again. That's that's kind of my take. I mean, you were you were on the inside for a lot of that, Chris. Yeah. I mean, the sad thing is, is there really wasn't there really wasn't one element, um, whether it was the ship construction, no, not at all, or the the manning or the training or the mission modules. There really wasn't one element that you could you could build on, right? I mean, the, right. there were problems across all of them. I, I think it, it it led us to where we are uh, today. Um, I worry now looking at the constellation class and I looking at, you know, other ideas for the future, whether it's unmanned or whether it's the light amphibious warship, ah. um, I, I worry we're, we're just, we're destined to make the same mistakes. Uh, it's frustrating be, because there is a need, there is a need for those, those ships. There's a need for that capability. Um, and I can't believe that, you know, almost 20 years later, we really haven't figured it out. I mean, you know, the critics would, or the, or the folks on the other side would say, Hey, we were always going to get rid of freedom and independence. So what do you guys, you know, don't, don't sweat that. Okay, fine. Put that aside for a second. But the idea that we're going to get rid of more ships and that we potentially could get rid of the entire freedom class uh, of the LCS while we still don't have mission modules um, that, that spells bigger problems for me beyond just this program. Um, you know, I, I think it's problems with NAVC, it's problems with the surface force that I really hope people are going to, going to look at and get their arms around. Yeah. Well, I don't have much confidence that that's happening. We're doing the, um, you know, there was never fleet buy-in to LCS. Um, they never considered that even, even the, the, the designation LCS, that that's a, that's a, program name when it when it came time to actually begin building the ships you have to open an account for a hull numbers that's when you have to give it a designation what are you going to call them was a question back in the day um what's the designation frigate ffl frigate light frigate littoral and they said no no we're going to call it an lcs well l is a is landing ships amphibious ships that's a complete category for all military planners those are the ships that carry lift, expeditionary ships like um, the assault ships we have, the amphibious ships. L-class ships is a thing. These are not L-class ships or weren't, certainly weren't supposed to be. Um, what are they? I don't know what they are. They were this asterisk. Uh, from the, from the get-go, there wasn't a, a consideration to integrate it into the culture. Even if you call them a light frigate or a littoral frigate, People would look at them, service warfare people would look at them and go, well, it's not the kind of, not the frigate I grew up with, but it's a new kind of frigate. Okay, it's a frigate. Culturally, they just they couldn't sell these ships. Um, and, and, and they didn't try, it is what annoys me. Um, even, even if you go out to San Diego today, 
um, along the waterfront, the 32nd Street. You have, you've got all the Crudez ships over here, cruisers, destroyers. You've got the amphibious ships over here, LSDs, LPDs, LHDs. And the LCSs, which people would say are supposed to be combatants, are all berthed with the L-class ships, the amphibs, not with the cruisers, not with the destroyers. And it's, it's kind of an un, un, unstated message that's there for everyone to see. You guys aren't really part of that fleet. You're over here. It's a cultural thing. I mean, there's so many of these things that uh, some of them are overt and some of them are not. And it's, you just never got the idea that you need to sell these things. You need to make them work. Stop complaining so much. Stop finding everything that's wrong and find some fixes. You've got them. That was the major attribute for them all those years. Why were there four LCSs in this budget? Why were there three in that budget? Why were they always building LCSs? Because we're building something and it's what we've got to build was the, was the true answer. I can't afford to buy all those destroyers, but I can buy three LCSs. And it keeps those constituencies happy. So you got them, make them work. And Admiral this and Admiral that and Admiral this and Admiral that didn't. They failed over and over and over. It's, it's no, there's no single point of failure here at all. That's why it's so incredibly complex. And anybody rails about one thing like I'm doing now is just kind of missing so many other things. I mean, even I can't, you can't even begin to touch on the aspects of failure here or problems and the, the mission modules, the logistics, the supply issues, the, 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 the support repair, how does all that work? Small crews, larger crews, everything. It just goes on and on and on. But there just is no attempt to fix something. And if we're if our budget is so constrained, and this is what you say to the Navy right now, if your budget is so constrained and you'd have no money to do anything, and you're you you know you you're worried about being able to fulfill all your requirements in a world of great power competition, why are you throwing away new ships? Why aren't you finding out ways to make those existing hulls that we already paid for, and exist? Why aren't you finding out ways to make those work? And that's what, when you really get down to it, that's what totally rankles me, is you're throwing things away without trying to make them work. You say, ah, that's not what I want. Well, good for you. Anyway, okay, that's enough from, from me. And I think... Now hear this. Now hear this. <laughs> All right. I think it's time for Mr. Cervello to weigh in on the littoral combat ship. So, Chris, somehow discussing the littoral combat ship program has become an emotional issue for those in and out of uniform, as our brief discussion just captured. For me, it's an emotional issue because I believe it's emblematic of what's wrong in today's service and acquisition culture. Maybe it's because I flacked for the littoral combat ship program for much of my Navy communication career, even as I watched and tried to explain away mistake after mistake by uniformed and corporate leaders. But looking at the images of freedom being decommissioned this week, I couldn't help but wonder, where would we be today if the LCS concept was more than PowerPoint deep when the Navy leadership pushed ahead in the early 2000s? Where would we be if we had down-selected one platform instead of two, doubling the learning and training curves for fleet leaders to deal with? Where would we be if industry and NAVC had even partially delivered on the ASW and my mission modules? And where would we be if the service community had really embraced LCS had really gotten behind what it was and what it could be. 
Some will argue it's water under the keel and that looking for answers to these and other puzzling enigmas about LCS are pointless. I guess I'd argue differently. As a Navy is poised to potentially scrub the entire freedom class as a way of paying budget bills, while continuing to tinker with the FFG design amidst dreams about light amphibious warships, the answers to these questions are critical. LCS is the ideal case study for why we can't go fast, for why we aren't innovative, and for why we risk falling behind the Chinese. I hope people smarter than me will dig deep into the lessons learned of LCS, if only to avoid having them become lessons relearned on future platforms. All right. Well, amen, brother. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Moradian for his support, as well as to the Fincantieri Marine Group and Huntington Ingalls Industries for their continued support of the defense and aerospace effort. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, folks. Bye-bye. Thank <laughs> you.